Springtime is all about fresh air, fresh starts, and freshly clean homes. And it's the perfect time to give a fresh look at Simply Safe Home Security. The home security system many of the most anxious people I know recommend. Here's why people love it. Trusted by experts, Simply Safe was named Best Home Security System for 2024 by US News and World Report. And Newsweek awarded it Best Customer Service in Home Security. The system blankets your whole home in protection. It has sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. Plus a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch over your property, day and night. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day, so you get fast emergency response and dispatch when you need it most. Simply Safe has given many of our listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/coverup. That's simplysafe.com/coverup. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Campsite Media. <laughs> This show contains graphic content that may be difficult for some listeners. Please listen with care. Most people prefer not to think about their own death. They avoid and dance around it. I used to be like that. I was healthy. Death seemed far off in the distance. Then, in the winter of 2021, I started having chest pains. I learned I had a rare congenital heart defect— It was dangerous and could have easily killed me, really, at any moment. I had to have open-heart surgery, and I was terrified. Doctors fixed the defect, and I'm okay now. But the whole experience inevitably made me think about my own death. At one point, I thought, if this surgery doesn't go well, should I donate my body to science? Then I started working on this story, and if all I knew about body donation was Sunset Mesa, I'd be like, hard pass. So, in part for my own edification, I wanted to visit a place where bodies do end up contributing to medical research and are treated with dignity. I basically wanted to find the opposite of Sunset Mesa. Last spring, I visited the University of Miami Medical School, And I met a guy there who says we need body donation. There is nothing like learning from a human body. There's no 3D, VR, AR, computer-generated, whatever experience that is the same as working on what was a living individual. My name is Dr. Tom Champney. I'm a professor here at the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine. And I help to run the body donation program. So I have two hats that I wear. Champney is in his 60s, but he looks 20 years younger, with a head full of salt and pepper hair, healthy tan, and dimpled chin. Back when he was in medical school, he says it was the norm for med students to take a detached approach to the bodies they worked on. They didn't treat these individuals um, as if they had been living humans. They, in essence, kind of told us that this was just material to work on. And that's changed now. We want to approach this more from an ethical view of, of how all human tissue should be treated. And the anatomy lab is a perfect example of that. Last spring, Champney gave me a tour of his anatomy lab, 
I followed him as we walked between huge stainless steel tanks. So these are the donor tanks. We have them in a, in a blue body bag, and we okay. encourage to all of the tissues to stay in that blue body bag. So that when Some of the steel tanks had these laminated cards with short descriptions about the donors. As we walk by, he points out details. Donor. I, I, I like him. He's a huge University of Miami fan. <laughs> Oh, he's got the University Love of Miami. Love for the Miami Hurricanes and NASCAR. I mean, she's even putting that his dog, Lucy. You want them to be aware that these were individuals who lived lives and um, are giving you kind of the ultimate sacrifice, right? The ultimate donation. Champney wants his students to understand the weighty history they're stepping into, a history where medical research on human bodies has not always been ethical or respectful. Many medical schools resorted to nefarious means to obtain these bodies. Uh, that included grave robbing. Body snatching occurred in the past, right? And bodies were obtained in the past that were unconsented. Body snatchers often targeted graves belonging to people of color. In one highly disturbing case in the 19th century, students and faculty at the medical school at Virginia Commonwealth University robbed African-American burial grounds. They discarded the bodies in a well on campus. The remains were found in 1994, and the college apologized. With this history in mind, Champney tries to create an environment of respect. He doesn't allow photographs in the lab, no gory jokes either. Students are instructed to handle bodies carefully. So if they take the lungs or the hearts out and look at them, they're required at the end of that to put the lungs back, to put the heart back, to put the chest on top, to put that individual back into the uh, proper state that they were, right? Um, again, that's a sign of respect. At one point, our conversation turns to body brokering, he knows about the notorious body broker cases that represent a threat to his work. There are the body brokers, which are for-profit, money-making ventures. He's not a fan. At least in my view, you should not be making money off of something that someone voluntarily donates out of the goodness of their heart. Champney is part of a small group of anatomists from around the world pushing for more laws in an industry that has very few rules. I believe we need federal regulations that specifically speak to how we can properly handle human tissues, something that we do not have. Are you familiar with the Sunset Mesa funeral? Yes, I am. Sunset Mesa was really bad. I think almost everybody around the world honors their deceased. We have funerals for individuals. We don't have funerals for refrigerators. We don't take our refrigerator out and say, oh, we need to have a memorial to our refrigerator. I get concerned that individuals want us to treat dead individuals identically to dead refrigerators. And I don't think that's appropriate. But at Sunset Mesa, Megan and Shirley had just decided the body is basically just an old fridge and a valuable one at that. Forget honoring the dead. Let's make some money. They'd run their scheme for eight years before getting caught. Now, the town of Montrose wanted justice. But whatever justice looked like in this case, the specter of what Megan and Shirley had done would loom and leave people questioning. At the end of their own lives, who could they really trust? And there are people selling body parts as we speak.
from Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, Body Brokers. Episode 8, Ashes to Ashes, Dust to Dust. I'm Ashley Fonts. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mary Lee Friedenthal is the hairdresser who's lived in Montrose for 30 years. She used to work at Sunset Mesa. And when Megan and Shirley were arrested, Mary Lee said practically everyone in town was buzzing about it. It's a small town, so everybody, you know, it's the phone chain. Hey, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? People had been waiting for Megan and Shirley to be held accountable. And now that it looked like that was happening... Every development in this story was the talk of the town. So people, you know, people were excited that she was being arrested and they were hopeful and then again disappointed because it had taken so long for her to be arrested and wondering how come it's dragging on so long. On the same day of their arrests, Megan and Shirley entered not guilty pleas and bonded out of jail. And although people saw them out and about, Behind closed doors, they were in a dark place. At some point after their arrests, both attempted suicide. The justice system worked slowly, and for many months, each side filed briefs, asked the court to move hearings further out. There was a lot of waiting. I don't think everybody really realized the complexity of the case and how how many people she had taken advantage of and how many people this was affecting. People expected a trial, but that was never going to happen because behind the scenes, prosecutors and defense attorneys had cut a deal, reducing the nine criminal counts the women faced to a single count of mail fraud for each. I interviewed quite a few victims who didn't think mail fraud sounded remotely serious enough to encompass Megan and Shirley's crimes. I mentioned their skepticism to FBI agent Paul Johnson, and he explained that it was actually a pretty savvy move on the prosecutor's part. I've had that conversation with a number of victims as well. And when you hear the word fraud and you think, you know, banks and mortgage and boy, that just doesn't seem right. But legally, fraud actually carries some of the stiffest penalties. Mail fraud and wire fraud, you can get 20 years in prison for it, but it just doesn't sound right to families. In fact, mail fraud is what the feds charged Philip Guyette with, that body broker out in California, who you met in episode four. 
He served eight years for his crimes. Zayat pleaded guilty to three counts of felony mail fraud for sending the tissue to three states in 2005. In Megan and Shirley's case, they agreed to plead guilty, but they would still have to enter their guilty pleas formally at a hearing. A plea hearing is a formality in many ways. The judge would read the facts of Megan and Shirley's crime, then ask them to describe in their own words what they did. This is important because how a defendant does that can convey to a sentencing judge whether they have any kind of remorse. By this point, Megan and Shirley had been out on bond for more than two years. And in July of 2022, they each appeared in a Colorado courtroom. Megan looked exhausted, and the hair she'd always permed and teased so high seemed flatter. When Shirley spoke, she said, I take full responsibility for my actions. But when it was Megan's turn, she struggled to take responsibility for her crime. She called the case against her a, quote, legal travesty, and she gave a classic non-apology apology. She said she was pleading guilty because families believe she went above the scope of the consent forms. I was fascinated to look through the documents that Megan's attorneys filed, their arguments for why her crimes weren't as black and white as they seemed. Attorneys tried to paint a picture of two women devoted to medical research. Megan Hess's lawyer says her client lost her way, but her motives were always good and pure. Megan's attorneys tried to paint a sympathetic portrait of their client. She was a single mother of modest means. Her lifestyle may have looked flashy from the outside, but in reality, she was deeply in debt. She drove an old car worth 1500 bucks. She wasn't with her husband anymore and was raising her daughter by herself. And her daughter was her world. Megan had told a court social worker, if I'm taken away from her, she won't make it. But by far the most surprising defense they tried to make was this. When Megan was 18, a horse kicked her in the face. As a result, she'd suffered a traumatic brain injury. And that injury, basically, hurt her ability to tell right from wrong. Her attorneys did note that Megan had never been treated for a brain injury. Nevertheless, they wrote, given her diminished capacity and deteriorating mental state, Megan believed that her fraud was justified. She was a broken human being. But if Megan was a broken person, so were the hundreds of people she and Shirley had deceived. The FBI concluded they had stolen 560 bodies, and the family and friends of those victims were hoping that they could begin to heal on January 3, 2023 the day Megan and Shirley were to be sentenced. This is like the grand finale I've been waiting for you. Since 2016, I've been trying to get to this point. Judy Kressler's father, a coal miner, had died all those years ago. You met Judy in episode one. She recounted how her dad believed that if he donated his body through Sunset Mesa, researchers could possibly find a cure for the cancer that killed him. But shortly after his death, Megan told his family she'd taken care of all of it in-house. She said, I've done the research myself, and the research is complete. 
and I've cremated his body. And you know I could charge you $1,000 for this cremation. The truth, of course, was that Megan had sold him. My father's body was embalmed the next morning. I was told later by the Department of Justice. And he was kept there in Sunset Mesa Funeral Home for several days until she could sell him. There was no medical research. I mean, it was a complete lie. Judy couldn't wait to face Megan and Shirley and tell them what she thought of them. Well, you know, I had a seat reserved when I was going to speak and I had everything all typed out. And that was on a Tuesday. This hearing was on a Tuesday, I believe. On Sunday, (laughs) two days before the hearing, I came down with the flu so bad. My fever was like 103. I was weak. I could not believe it. I said, Lord, no, 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 not this. Judy stayed in bed and watched the live stream of the court proceedings on her phone. Charlotte Downing couldn't be there either, but she checked the live stream feed as well all day long. I had an appointment in Owensboro, which is about a 45-minute drive, on the day that the sentencing was. So I had my little phone, and at every opportunity, if I was not actually in my meeting, I was glued to that phone. Many victims were there in person. The courtroom didn't have enough seating to accommodate all of the families, so folding chairs were brought in. It was the first time some of the victims were coming face-to-face with Megan and Shirley in court, and they had a chance to speak. There was profound anger and pain in their voices. One person said that the experience felt worse than the death of their mother, A mother whose daughter was dismembered and sold addressed Shirley directly. How could you let your daughter get so out of control that she did this and you did nothing to stop her? There are no cameras or recording devices allowed in federal court, so we don't have any of this on tape. But I asked Judy Kressler to share with me what she would have said at the hearing if she hadn't been home sick that day. The truth is, Your Honor, my father's body was neither donated or cremated, but sold to a plastination company for the price of a cheap car. That box of cremains we have actually contains the mixed ashes of other people, along with burnt trash, floral wire, tooth caps, broken glass, snaps from a Wrangler Western shirt, and the inlay of a Swiss Army knife. Hess and Koch burned trash with human remains because these people were trash to them. The judge presiding was Christine Arguello, a Latina with a storied legal career who also grew up poor in a rural area of Colorado. The judge, in my opinion, was absolutely wonderful. She was, as near as I could tell, she was fair. You people broke the law. You're going to pay for it. Early on, Judge Arguello made it clear that she was very skeptical of Megan's claim of a brain injury. She said Megan didn't appear to have mental health issues before she got caught. The judge also said it was concerning that Megan refused to take responsibility. Before the judge announced Megan and Shirley's sentence, she spoke about losing her own husband, the grief that consumed her how vulnerable she felt. Then she asked for a moment of silence for the victims before her, for their lost loved ones. And then it was time for the main event. When the sentences were read, it was a maximum sentence for Megan and for Shirley. The judge sentenced Megan to 20 years in prison. Shirley got 15. 
It was beautiful. I mean, I watched on video as they were handcuffed at the end of court. It was one of the most beautiful sights I ever saw. It took me years to see those two get handcuffed in their red Christmas sweaters. After they pled guilty, we knew they were going to go to prison. That was totally unreal. And it took all day. It was very, very long. And with that, Megan and Shirley were taken into custody. They were bound for a prison in Minnesota, more than a thousand miles away from Montrose. And they were ordered to reimburse more than $400,000 to people who'd paid for funeral services that never happened. In Judy's eyes, justice was served, at least here on Earth. But Megan and Shirley had a higher power to answer to. At the end of the Bible tells us, be, be sure your sins will find you out. And it, it did. And if those two don't repent and change their lives, get right with the Lord, you know, they've got a judgment coming after their deaths that's far worse than what Judge Arguello could ever give to them. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. The judge said the Sunset Mesa case was the most emotionally draining one she'd handled in her 14 years on the bench. And it had left victims drained, too. What surprised me was when the sentences were read... The day was over, the cameras were off, and I felt like I had been run over all day long by a bulldozer. I had no idea how powerful, how much influence, how much emotion I was expending over all this. And I, I told Glenn, I said, I can't believe this. I'm just, I'm exhausted. I just... <sighs> Charla said for the next two days, she did almost nothing but sleep. I don't know how many days it was after that even that I began to do things again. The psychological wounds Megan and Shirley inflicted on their victims were so great, some are still struggling to move on with their lives. During my conversations with them, I felt their pain so deeply. Some have tried talking to social workers, their priest or minister. Therapists were hit or miss. Others told me it was just too strange, too out of this world. You can't talk to other people about this. People do not want to talk about this. It is so uncomfortable. Either that or they think you're crazy. But they do not want to talk about this. I mean, you tell them 
you know, the, the funeral home stole my father's body and sold it to Saudi Arabia. And they're like, oh, that's terrible. Well, look at the time I've got to go. You know, they just people don't want to talk about it. It's, it's so uncomfortable. Ultimately, some of the best support victims have found has been in each other. Some of them formed a Facebook support group where they could share their stories and information about the case. A lot of those people in that group became very, very close. And it was a very good thing to have that because I lost friends over this. Everyone did. So to have a safe place to go and to cry and to vent your frustrations and your anger um, was a really good thing. Julie Glenn thinks about her brother Michael every day. When I was very small, we had a large four-bedroom house, and I was at the very first bedroom at the top of the stairs. And Michael was at the third bedroom down, and I can remember when I would get scared at night. You know, I didn't go to my sister's room or my parents' room. I went to my big brother's room because I just knew he was going to protect me. So, um, and I would go in there and I'd crawl on the other side of his bed and, and he would just say, it's all right, Jewel, everything's going to be all right. After Michael died, Julie had Sunset Mesa handle his cremation. But Megan had sold Michael's head to a plastination company. And from there, it had ended up at Vanderbilt University. The school wasn't implicated in any wrongdoing, but I was still hoping someone there would talk to me. No one would. Julie would be so happy to just get one piece of Michael back, a pinky finger even. But instead, Michael is truly lost in the deepest sense of the word. And that's because of Megan. You know, a lot of people in the victims group are saying, you know, uh, I, I feel bad for her. I, you know, God bless her. God help her. I, I don't care. Am I allowed to hate her? I am. And I do. And I always will. Julie suffered nightmares and even terrible visions. She couldn't work. She gained weight. She was stuck in a hole. I would hear so many times from my family or my girlfriends, Julie, you got to get to the other side of this. It took me years to realize that I can't move on from it. I had to figure out a way to move forward with it. And that was the difference. And that's what I do every day. Every single day, I get out of bed. I have a choice on how to, how to move forward with it. Julie is one of the most inspiring people I met reporting this story. Even in her grief, she's been able to hold on to humor. Oh, I know. He was amazing. He was amazing. Really quickly, yeah. is there someone walking around upstairs? It's logs. Oh, just the log home? Okay. It's the logs, There's yeah. a little bit of creaking in the home, but... Yeah, okay. they move, oh. yep. So it's just the logs moving. <laughs> okay. It's not my brother. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> There is still no federal law that regulates body brokering. But in Colorado, the Sunset Mesa case did lead to some change. Before all this, state regulators couldn't inspect Sunset Mesa Funeral Home without Megan's permission. Now, inspectors can walk into any funeral home anytime they get a complaint. 
before the Sunset Mesa case, abusing a corpse was a mere misdemeanor. Now it's a felony. And in response to Megan and Shirley's arrests in 2018, Colorado made it illegal for someone to run a funeral home and have an interest in a body donation entity. Still, those changes didn't seem to stop another funeral home operator in another small town in Colorado called Penrose. Tonight, all families who have used Return to Nature Funeral Home are asked to please come forward to authorities. That story was actually breaking as I was writing this episode last October. It may take months more for families to know for sure if their loved ones are among the 115 bodies found so far. The owners of the funeral home were arrested on suspicion of multiple felonies, including alleged abuse of a corpse and money laundering. At the time of this recording, they were in jail and law enforcement was investigating. Formal charges had not yet been brought. It's unclear what happened at that funeral home. But what's very clear to me is that there have to be more protections in place for all of us who have to use funeral homes. Almost from the beginning of recorded history, if you desecrate the dead, that was a big, 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 big no-no for every tribe, every known culture. And you would think that in 2022, we would not have to regulate our industry in order to accomplish that. But apparently we do. Megan and Shirley are serving time in the same prison in southern Minnesota. It's a federal lockup, low security, in the middle of sprawling farmland. It's so far away from Montrose that it's pretty hard to imagine Megan's daughter being able to visit very often. I thought back to what Mary Lee had told me, that Megan was willing to do whatever it took to give her daughter the very best of everything. It's just plain tragic that the cost of Megan's crimes was the total opposite, because now the girl has to grow up without a mom. Shortly after they were sentenced, Megan and Shirley each filed appeals, essentially arguing that their sentences were too harsh. I wrote letters to them, but they didn't respond. I also wrote to their attorneys. One got back to me saying she didn't want to talk. The civil suits that name them are still pending, and their appeals are still making their way through the system. If they're denied, Megan will be in her late 60s when she gets out of prison, and Shirley will be in her 80s. When they pleaded guilty, they agreed to never work in the funeral industry again. For many victims, the lingering question remained of what to do with the ashes they had. It wasn't their person, but it was somebody's. During my reporting, folks in the Facebook group were putting together a plan. Um, Our Sunset Mesa survivors, we're all going to get together probably this September, and we're all going to scatter the ashes together of these people that we have that are not our people. I mean, they are our people. We're taking care of them and giving them more respect and dignity than Megan Hess ever did. But we're going to scatter them together and set them free. And on a clear and warm late September day, that's what some of them did. About a dozen victims gathered at a park just outside Montrose. There were locals, but others who traveled a really long way to be there. Well, we always wondered what we're going to do with this stuff. And 
I think this is probably the best thing. So, you know, it, it, we made a 12-hour drive, you know, not in one day, but yeah, we... They all we gathered at a table under a covered pavilion. Someone had brought along a blinking disco light, like the kind you see at a middle school dance. People were passing the light around like a talking oh, stick. everything. I don't know what I want to do when I die now, because who do you trust? And for somebody to take advantage of, of you when you're in that vulnerable mm-hmm. state is just... And to give advantage of your family. Yes, yes. And it, I was thinking, you know, I have a lot of anger around it, and, mm-hmm. but I think she affected and impacted so many people, and that's what breaks my heart, is we're all... Somebody said, you belong to a club that nobody wants to be in, mm-hmm. and, it, and it, it is. It's, it's such... So it's just After two hours of sharing their stories, everyone walked over to the shore of the Gunnison River. People got out their bags of ashes and slowly released the contents into the water. But at least one person couldn't bring herself to do it, Julie Glenn. I just couldn't do it. If there was a piece of my brother, any part of him, in the ashes that I have, He's going with my mother. I I couldn't bring him here today. Judy recited a passage from the Book of Psalms. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I just really wanted to, you know, see everybody from the group that was going to be here and and let go of these ashes. I've had them in my closet for years, and just time to to let them go. The blind trust I had in. And people was not there as much anymore, and uh, it's changed how I view death. You know, um, I've told my own daughters when I die, I want you guys to make sure that's me in the coffin, make sure I'm all there, and make sure it's me that goes in the ground because I don't want this to happen to me. It's important to be clear that what happened at Sunset Mesa is the exception rather than the rule in the wider scheme of the many thousands of people who die every single day in this country. Many funeral homes treat bodies with dignity, and most bodies are not sold without the knowledge of their family. And Professor Tom Champney reminded me that donated bodies are still an irreplaceable teaching tool for future medical workers. If you want to donate your body, which I would encourage all to do, I think it's a, I think it's a very helpful and valuable thing. If you want to donate it, you need to do some background, some research. I encourage people to contact their local medical schools, and they can usually tell you, yes, we have a body donor program. You know, Ask them questions. Don't be shy. Part of this body donation program is transparency and consent. And if you're going to consent, I would like you to be fully informed when you do that consent. There are ways to know that your body is going to be treated the way you wanted. Before I did this story, I had no idea. You can actually request to watch your loved one's cremation. Now, I totally get that that might be too tough to do. But you can also have a family friend who is less emotionally involved witness it. That can provide peace of mind. Charlotte had lived in Montrose much of her life. All her childhood memories were of that town, and she'd built her dream house there. But when the Sunset Mesa case was all over, Charlotte moved far away to Kentucky. I 
didn't move because of what had happened. There were some family issues involved, but the hurt, the embarrassment, that whole package made it easier to leave. And when we drove out the drive, when we left Montrose, I never turned around and looked back once. I was happy we were going. And I love it here. I'm very happy here. I'm very glad this case has resolved as far as it has. And God has been good. Still, Charlotte lives with a question mark. She chose not to have her dad's ashes forensically tested. And despite what an FBI agent told her, that her father was a victim, she chooses still to believe it's him in that mason jar. My belief is that a lot of them are my dad's. But whoever's they are, we will treat them with great respect and dignity, and eventually they will be reburied here in Kentucky. This whole experience has changed the way Charlotte trusts people and how she's planning for her own death. She told me a story from a few months ago when she and her husband, Glenn, were driving home from lunch and they passed a funeral home. And Glenn said, very innocently, you know, we should stop in sometime, introduce ourselves and start, you know, making arrangements in case something happens to one of us. And my response to him was not, oh, I don't think that's a really good idea. It was, no, we're not doing that. Just that fast. Did he have a good idea? Yeah, probably. He Has he talked me into it yet? Nope, (laughs) he hasn't. But now I suspect every funeral home, evidently. And I know that there are good people out there, there are good funeral directors out there, but they're probably gonna have to prove it to me now. Cover Up, Body Brokers is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment in association with Black Bar Mitzvah. The show was reported and hosted by me, Ashley Fonts. Elizabeth Van Brocklin is the senior producer. The associate producers are Rachel Young and Callie Hitchcock. Field producers were Megan Burney and Monique Laborde. Cassie Canoost provided additional field reporting for this episode. The editors were Emily Martinez, Matt Scher, and Anthony Puccillo. Sound design mix and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Fact-checking by Sarah Ivry. Recording by Jimmy Guthrie at Arcade 160 Studios in Atlanta. A special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, Sabina Mara, and Destiny Dingle. Campside Media's executive producers are Josh D. Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed Cover Up Body Brokers, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.